We welcome to the Only Fools and Horses podcast, Adrian Pegg. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you very much. Got a glass of wine for the evening. Cheers. I got my beer. You can just about see that. I'm here <laughs> at Nags Head, yeah. Yes. Very impressive. I like the background. Thanks. So um, you worked on Only Fools and Horses in production and locations manager. Uh, for people who aren't involved in TV, what does that involve? Uh, well, this is this is the way telly was in those days in the 80s when I when I was doing it. I was actually called the production manager for most of it. But at the BBC, the job of the production manager encompassed an awful lot of things that it doesn't anymore. So as a production manager, you, you weren't only looking after the budget and the schedule, but you're also location managing you were looking after all the health and safety stuff. Um, you were floor managing in the studio and you were what's called first AD, first assistant director on location. So you were running the film shoots as well. And all those bits of the role over time have now kind of disappeared. But they existed at the BBC because of the way the BBC was set up. It was set up with resource departments that could service everything, you know, everything you could possibly need. You sort of put on a piece of paper and sent it off to a department and it turned up, which doesn't happen anymore. And uh, the job has become something different now. But that's the way it was then. And it was it was great to do. And those of us who were lucky enough to do it got a lot of experience out of it. Yeah, sort of a jack of all trades then. Yeah, I mean, it's everything apart from the creative content side of side of things. Uh, it was all the logistics and the management and the organisation and all of that stuff that um, was my job. Great. Have you got any good stories from your time? <laughs> I started on Fools and Horses, I think it was towards the end of Series 4. I was very junior on that when Sue Longstaff was still production managing. I think my first ever shoot was with, it was outside Boise's house with the big dog. I can't remember what the setup was, but that was, that was my, it was, I think it was halfway through series four. That was my first location shoot. I think this was Marlene's first episode, I believe. Oh, yes, that's right. I think it probably was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was there doing that one. We we, we went to a different house for, for Boise. Um, once I'd started working, we moved it to Bristol. Uh, we found something else you know, for the satellite dish episode. That was somewhere else entirely. But that, that's what happens. I mean, there were, there were half a dozen nags heads, for example, um, just for convenience, really. Whether people noticed or not, I don't know. Probably they did. You certainly would. Yeah. So a lot of it was filmed in Bristol, wasn't it? Only Fools and Horses, for people who don't know. Yeah, we, we Series 5, I think, is the one with the with Biffo and the church and the leaky roof and all that stuff. And um, by that time, I was production managing and we took the unit down to this disused church in somewhere in South London somewhere. And we shot that down there and we had a like a Winnie Baker caravan thing for, for David and it was broken into and we had something stolen from it. And we realised at that point the show was getting so popular. Filming in London was, was becoming more and more awkward. There were lots and lots of people around and everyone was interested and, you know, really knew who it was. And so we, we decided at that point we we're going to have to try and change things. And I, I think I suggested Bristol. I, I have no idea why I did. But I went to have a look at it and, uh, you know, we, we could make that work for, for various parts of London. And so we, we, we the first difficult bit was finding flats that looked like the ones in the opening titles, the, you know, the uh, Nelson Mandela house sort of block of three flats together in those days i mean it's the 80s and i you know no no mobile phones no internet you know you had an a to z on paper and a car you know you went back to the hotel and made phone calls and that was that but I, all i could do really was i rang i think i rang the council and asked them if they knew of anywhere because at least they knew the series by then and they knew what i meant when i said nelson mandela house and they sent me off somewhere and you'll probably know the name of this place but i can't remember it but it was um uh, that was the place that i found in in Bristol to replace the the London version ones in Acton 
that seems to, you know that's that was then kept till the end of the run that was very successful really yeah i don't know the name of it but it's very cr- close to bristol city's football stadium isn't it was it is it white mead house something like that yeah yeah something like that yeah that rings a bell I love that episode you mentioned. I think it was the miracle of Peckham. This is the one where um, there's meant to be like a, a miracle. And then, it, of course, it transpires that it's a leaky roof, uh, yes. a lead roof that Della's nicked. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. And one of the stories from that episode was that I, the, the bell tower where they go up and find the actual water coming in was not that church. It was somewhere completely different. And I'd, I'd set that up weeks ahead of filming happened to find this sort of spire that was being renovated and uh, set it up and we turned up there and they'd sort of almost finished the work. <laughs> and it was my fault really for not checking that, that you know, they, they would leave it in the same condition. But it was almost disastrous because it was almost not usable as, a, as that location. But the special effects guys had to go out on the roof and feed in the water and have that, have that water dripping through. But that was, you know, that's just the way, the way it goes, really. Yeah, it's amazing how it works, really, because you'd never know that watching it, that it was a different location, really. No, it was completely different. I, I don't remember where it was, but it was, you know, there were two separate things that were needed. One was a church where you could film in, and the other one was a, a church spire where they discover the water coming in, and they don't have to be in the same place or no. even the same city. So, I suppose you don't think about it when you're watching it. I mean, the famous no. Chandelier episode when Grandad's taking the floorboards up and, you know, before he accidentally picks the wrong chandelier. Yeah, that's somewhere completely different. Well, that that actually, I, I remember that when they were looking for that because I think I was probably, I was probably around at the BBC. It's very early days when I just joined and I remember they were looking for that and they did it in the, I think she was the assistant floor manager and I think her name was Barbara, but I can't remember her, her name completely. And I think they decided to do it in her loft because she had a loft and they were able to get up there and they had floorboards and they could lift and they, they put a screen around to give it a bit of background. So that shot, yeah, you're right, that shot of him banging the uh, the bolt through the floor is actually in her loft, I think, as far as I remember. Great. And the process of putting the show together, that must be very different from how they do it today, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, all, all sitcoms in those days of the BBC were done in a... All the filming was done first, so you'd set up a three-week shoot somewhere and all the film locations from all the episodes, those that have been written anyway, were put into the filming schedule and the locations were all set up and everything was organised, hotels and transport and you know who was needed on which day and all that kind of stuff was all organized and then you'd go away for three weeks well if it's london you wouldn't go away you just do it on a daily basis but when, when we did it in bristol we went down stayed i think in the in the holiday inn or something in bristol and we did all the location stuff for the whole series including the well, on that particular series the dolls blowing up <laughs> down at the docks and the the, the, the um outside the nightclub the, with uh, tony tony angelino great episode outside uh, the bits outside the uh, Dirty Barry's shop. Yeah. Down the alleyway. The interior's all done in the studio later, but that was all done in that first three weeks. And that went off to the film editor, who was a guy, I think, called John Jarvis, down in Shepherd's Bush. Because that was all shot on film in those days. It was all on 16mm film. And that would get processed and then cut, physically cut with a razor blade and stuck together, and then sent off for a print. And that print then was rolled into the studio 
when we came to do the studios on a weekly basis, weekly turnaround. So you came back from filming three weeks. There was a bit of a hiatus where you sorted out rehearsals and then you started on a weekly turnaround of rehearsals. And I think we normally did the studios on a Sunday because it was easier to get an audience. And then you'd have Monday off and then go back to rehearsal room on the Tuesday. From my point of view, I'd be organising all the props and everything else that we needed. And then we'd have, have a, what's called a tech run where the camera crew turned up and the sound crew and everybody else who was involved had a look at it and looked at camera positions and discussed everything with the director. And then the set went in the studio and you did it. And then you went on to the next one. But on the night of the studio, the stuff you'd filmed had been already been edited. You didn't have any laughs on it because it hadn't been seen by anybody. And then at the appropriate points in the story, those were rolled in so the studio audience could see that. And then the laughs were recorded at that point. Great. And you mentioned uh, Danger UXD. Where did you find the dolls from then? <laughs> did you find the dolls? <laughs> I didn't know my, my again this is the way things have changed nowadays the um prop buyer we had a prop buyer uh, and there were various uh throughout the series uh their names are on the credits I don't remember who who that one was but um I mean all I had to do as an assistant floor manager because the assistant floor manager is the one who breaks down the props so the, the whoever was doing that would have read the script and written on a prop request three blow-up dolls and sent it off in a brown envelope to the props department and then they turned up in the studio so it was that it was that straightforward really stay with us we'll be right back i'm comedian david race in los angeles i host a celebrity filled paranormal talk show like no other monstrosity has great guests answering weird questions you won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. Magic. Yeah, that's probably one of the best episodes. People really still enjoy that one today. My assistant on that one was um, Carrie Waddell, who's a lovely lady. I don't think she's in the business anymore. But she was the one who was crouching behind the bar and on cue she had to pop the dolls up like that um, <laughs> for the dolls to make their appearance. And that got a huge belting laugh. It still does. I mean, you've seen it a hundred times, but you, every time you watch it, it always it always makes you laugh. It's the reactions, isn't it, of uh, Del Boy and Rodney? Yeah, yeah. And it's John Sullivan's genius at being able to surprise the audience like that because uh, he was he was always so clever at doing things like that. And you mentioned Stage Fright. That was a very good episode. What were your memories of that one? Which was that, Tony Angelino, that one? Yeah, Tony Angelino. Yes. Most of that studio, we did the, the little bit in the club. The voice you hear announcing Tony Angelino, do you know who that is? You? No, it's Tony Dow, the director. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. no, I didn't know that. That's a good trivia. Yeah, but... yeah. yeah. He, um, he he recorded that off screen and um, and that gets, that gets played in. The band were the same people that we had in Raquel's nightclub scene. A guy called Kennedy Aitchison was the MD on the keyboards. I'm pretty sure that he was he we had the same band in for the for both scenes actually. Oh it's the same show, wasn't it? Yes, it was the same show. Was it the same show? Yes. Yeah, that, that was later on, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, they see Tony Angelino early on, don't they? And then they book him and that's then right. that's when he performs that's right. and then we find Raquel. out we find out about Quine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. And so, yeah, uh, the interesting, slightly interesting thing about that one was that the nightclub scene itself with Tony Angelino, the big event one, was a nightclub in Ealing. And the little one 
the sort of working men's club version was was one in Bristol. I don't remember why it was scheduled like that, but it was. That's the way it ended up. I think we needed a bigger place than we could find in Bristol, possibly. But there were a couple of scenes that we had to come back to London for. One of them was the, do you know the um, the big car chase with the American car and the yobs and all that stuff? In Danes. Yeah, that's one. Yeah. So one of the locations that I couldn't find anywhere in Bristol was a humpback bridge to make the trotters van fly over the top of it and take off. I just couldn't find anything in Bristol at all. And eventually I found something in Ealing. I think it was around the corner from that nightclub. And that's why we came back to London for that one shot. So the whole chase sequence takes place in Bristol, apart from that shot where he flies over the humpback bridge. Brilliant. And again, you'd never know. That's the magic of TV, you know, how it's all put together. Amazing. No, and you wouldn't be able to do it the way we did it in those days either, because, I mean, it was, fortunately, nobody ever got hurt, but <laughs> health and safety was very <laughs> lax in those days. And I think all we had was a few bales of hay down the side of the road. We didn't even close the road. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> bales of hay down the side of the road, told the pedestrians to keep back, and the car went flying over the bridge, took off with a stuntman driving it, and crashed on the other side. But that had to be had to be reinforced underneath that car. We had several versions of the Trotters van. That one had to go away and be reinforced so it survived the jump. Wow. So how, how many vans do you reckon there was in total? There was many, wasn't there? I, I read somewhere about 20 or uh, different numbers. I, I don't know because it's not, again, it, that was something that the, you know, the, the props department just turned up with. There, there were probably loads. I mean, they, there were certainly some that were rigged with a smoke, a switch, so you could click a switch in the, in the car and the smoke bellowed out the back. Um, <laughs> and others that were tricks like the one we used for the jump. Must be a lot though, yeah. And that scene you mentioned, yeah. that's a fantastic scene. That's, of course, Rodney and Nervous Neris uh, running away from the yobs. Yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. That was another one. The the um, When they have the crash in the street with a police car, do you remember that? Yeah. They're belting around these streets, and then there's traffic lights change, car stops, police car goes in the back. Do you remember that scene? From the same... So, yeah, from the same episode. That was set up with a, a lay-by on one side of the road, and then roadworks were created to give us the um, the junction. On the day we turned up to shoot that, somebody parked in that lay-by. <laughs> and that's not the sort of thing you want to find when you turn up for a shoot in the morning and you've got to have a clear space. And again, you know, I don't think you get away with it these days, but we put that, we put somebody's car on skates and wheeled it down the road for the, so we could do the filming because we had no idea whose it was. <laughs> and then put it back put it back afterwards i don't suppose they ever found out yeah it sounds like yeah you could get away with a lot back then which was which yeah. was good yeah so was you always a fan of the show when you got involved or did you become oh, a fan yeah. later? no 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 I, I loved the show i thought the show was terrific and i was just really lucky to get in with ray butt's office ray butt was the producer i first i went to the bbc i think it was about 1982 or something like that when i first pitched up as a floor assistant having come from the theatre, doing some work in the theatre, stage management. And um, I got on to Just Good Friends, which was a previous John Sullivan show, and started working in that team. And then did uh, then I moved on to Fools and Horses, uh, and then moved up the ranks in only Fools and Horses, but also did Dear John, which was another of John Sullivan's shows. So I was incredibly lucky, really. Yeah, an amazing time for TV, wasn't it? As you mentioned, all those shows. And John Sullivan, such a legend. Yeah, completely. He was a lovely man. Really and hard working with him. What was Ray Butt like? Because we, we hear a lot of stories about Ray Butt on the podcast. <laughs> and um, you, also he cast... Tell me what you've heard. Well, just lots of different things over the years. And 
also how he cast a lot of the people in it. He was responsible for a lot of that, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I mean, he uh, we got on fine most of the time. Sometimes he had a bit too much to drink now and again, occasionally. He's dead now, so it's all right. Um, and uh, to the point where my brief, some occasions when going out finding locations for him, was it wasn't so much about what the location needed to be. It was, it's got to be near a pub, but not a Watney's pub. <laughs> and literally that genuinely that was his location brief for me <laughs> and uh that's what i had to go and find because he liked yeah, to, the, he liked to pop in for his lunchtime pint i think the story we heard was to hollenbach that episode and he got stuck mm. on an oil rig and he was very disappointed because there wasn't a pub there <laughs> oh i'm sure i can imagine that that was uh sue longstaff show that one he as for casting yeah i mean he, he had a, he seemed to have a, a talent for that Although some of the cast were my idea. I, I, I was at Central School of Speech and Drama on the stage management course with Tessa Pete Jones. She was doing the acting course and it was me that suggested Tessa. And I think they they saw a lot of people for that part, including people like Lisa. No, that was Cassandra. Yeah, Cassandra. Anyway, um, I, I, I suggested Tessa, certainly. And so that's why she was seen for that. And then she turned out to be brilliant. And the other one that came for me was Roger Blake. Roger Blake plays the, I can't remember his name, the big bloke in the Tony Angelino episode, the the, the, the villain, the big villain. Yeah, the, gang, the gangster guy. Yeah, I the can't think of his name either, yeah. And his mum is laughing her head off. That's it. Um, That's yeah. it. Uh, Roger Blake, well, he was my idea as well. He was in the same year as Tessa in the same course at Central. I was doing the stage management course and they were doing the acting course. But it's quite nice to have a, you know, to be able to have a hand in, hand in some of that stuff. Yeah, and you're going to be doing the convention, aren't you? I believe that's in October, if I'm correct. Are you looking forward yes. to that? No, it's in March. Oh, March. Oh, it's earlier this year. I think last year. It's in the Austin Kings, yeah. Perry's been on at me for ages to, you know, Perry Agajanov, who runs the... Um, Appreciation Society. Society. Yes. Yeah. He, he's asked me several times if I would do it. And, and then I found out this year, firstly, I've retired. I've stopped working. So I've got time on my hands and I can do, do it. And secondly, I found out that Tony Dow's going to be there and who else? A number of other people that I'll, I'll know are going to be there. So I thought I'd, I thought I'd say yes. <laughs> yeah, Not don't blame you. It sounds great. No. You might, yeah, you might have to tell a few stories, I imagine. I think so, but I think it'll just be like this. Apparently, I get interviewed on stage a couple of times, but it'll, it'll hopefully, it'll just be as relaxed as as this is. Just yeah, sort I'm of sure chatting with the audience, listening in, really. I think last year Tony Dow was saying about the Batman and Robin episode and how that was filmed, and like you said earlier, like at that stage they had to really keep it under wraps, like what they were doing. And did you find that were the press about, or did you? Yeah, yeah. And every time uh, Christmas Christmas specials were the worst ones because the press were really keen to get some information, and obviously the BBC was very keen for them not to spoil anything. And where it really came for me to the fore was when we did the coach blowing up for Jolly Boys outing, and uh, we were in this coach park on Margate Seafront, and it was just the big, it was the big sort of moment of the show, really. And I can remember that there were some seaside flats on the other side of the road overlooking the sea, quite high buildings. Then there was the coach park. And I'd had, a, a, apart from our coach, which was going to blow up, we also had a number of prop coaches that were moving around as background because it wasn't, it wasn't actually a coach park, I don't think. And I remember having to sort of organise them in a circle. I put the wagons in a circle around the film <laughs> to try to stop the photographers getting access to what was going on. That was that was where, you know, the impact of possibly the press finding out was 
we tried to stop that. That must have been a lot of fun to blow up that coach, I imagine. It was. We did it a few times. It's not just one take. It, it uh, you know, we only had one camera. It's a film camera. So to get all those different angles and different shots, you had to do things several times. So the prop boys, sorry, the visual effects boys, Andy McVeigh was down there and his team uh, had to rig the coach several times. And there were, you know, fishing lines on the back of the, the bus to pull the, pull the boot out and charges in the side. So as they went off, they pulled the doors, that sort of thing. And that's how you've got all the different angles, because I don't think we have more than one camera. So piece all together, it looks a lot bigger than it actually was in the day. And then, of course, we had to do the reverse. So we had to see it with Rodney in the phone box, which was our phone box, by the way. It wasn't there. But you need to see the reflection of the explosion as well. So we had to do that one. Yeah, it's, it's great, all the different elements that go into it. I mean, people don't realise, do they, really? No, no. It's a lot easier nowadays with digital as well. But a lot of those explosions and things like that, a lot of them would look more realistic, you know, compared to nowadays, because um, some of them are yeah. a bit over the top, aren't they? I think so, yeah. And mm-hmm. that episode, The Jolly Boys Outing, that's one of the best episodes of Only Fools and Horses. Was that a hard episode to do in terms of what you had to do because it was on location or was it like any it was other? Like, oh, it's good fun. I mean, we had to take a bunch of extras down with us because they were, you know, supposed to be the other people in the nag's head. So it wasn't just the core cast there was also other extras that had needed to be sort of continuity in all the other the big scenes like outside the station and you know at the coach park that sort of thing in the coach for the coach um driving in fact that picture up there is the picture outside the pub oh great let's have a look um, i can show you that's you've seen that photo presumably that's the cast and and crew and there's me with the walkie-talkie yeah, it sounded yeah. like a lot of fun, the Jolly Boys outing uh, that week. Yes. That, it was a few weeks, wasn't it, I believe? It was a few weeks. And then I've got this one as well, which actually has been signed, although the signatures are fairly faint nowadays. You can see that from Nick. It says, can you see that? Is it the right way around? Was the text? Yeah, reversed? yeah, we, I can just about see it. What does it say? It says, to Adrian, where's my helicopter? And the reason for that is... We had, um, when they arrived in Margate, there's the aerial shot of the coach coming in. Do you, do you remember that, where they come down in the coach as they arrive into Margate with um, yeah. 2468 motorway playing? That's it, yeah, um, and then the radio. That's it. So I knew that David and Nick had to get back to London for uh, an awards night. And so I scheduled the helicopter shot on the same night, the same day as that awards night. And they, they flew back in the helicopter to get to make to make it to the awards on time. Oh, brilliant. So... Uh, so Nick, <laughs> he put where's my helicopter in reference to that. No, that's, that's lovely. And uh, yeah, that's a great personal memory, isn't it? As well as yeah. the, the signature as well. And we always hear that um, it sounds corny, but Only Fools and Horses was sort of a, a family. Lot, lots of people got on, didn't they? Very much. Yeah, it was great. It was, it, was, it, was, um, it was good fun to do it year after year, seeing the same people. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing David again. I haven't seen at the convention. I haven't seen him for donkey's years, 20 years or more. According to Perry, he does remember who I am, but we shall see. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. We, we'll find out. Yeah. Because the other Chris who couldn't make it tonight, he went last year to the convention. Oh, he loved it, obviously. Big fan. And he got to meet Sir David. And he had one of these uh, cigars, these fake cigars or whatever. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, he dressed up as Del Boy and everything. Seriously, he's a big, big fan. And um, David Jason loved that. So, yeah. Yeah. What else can I tell you? Something you probably don't know. When we were filming, I discovered, although although Nick was very young at the time, in fact, I think he's the same age as me now, or always was, but... but, um, he was very young when we were doing the early 
series, he had a, a pilot's license. Did you know did you know he had a pilot's license? No, so he can fly a plane. What do you think was the best location you found for an episode? Well, some of them were quite convenient to me. I live in North London. I, I, I live in the same house now that I lived in. Oh, no, no. I live in the same area. I don't live in the same house. So consequently, some of the locations aren't quite near to where I live. For example, do you remember when they get a lift home from Cassandra's friend after the nightclub? Is that in dates? Um, yuppie Love, that one. Yuppie Love, that one, yes. They drop off Cassandra's friend around the corner from me here and then around the corner from that where all the where he pretends to live. Kings Avenue, something like that? Kings Avenue, yes, yes. It's actually called, oh God, what's the name of the place? Can't remember the name of the street now, but it's around. That's also around the corner from me. It's, it's I mean, the, it was called Kings Avenue because it was meant to be Bishop's Avenue in Hampstead or something representing that. But I knew that that would be very difficult to film in somewhere around there. And I knew that near me, around the corner from here, there is a street with very, very large, expensive-looking houses. So we did that, and then we put up the rain towers, and that's where he, the you know, cosmic stuff happens, and he walks off into the rain, and the raincoat shrinks, and all that stuff. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I love that. So, that that's a good. Okay. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good location. That yeah, especially if it's just around the corner. Very handy. And in fact, one of the things I've confessed recently, even though I was responsible for the locations on Fools and Horses, I have never been to Beckham, <laughs> and even to this day, I've never been to Beckham. So uh, <laughs> uh, I probably it's not something I probably should admit, but it's so long ago now, it doesn't really matter. But no, I didn't didn't ever look at Beckham. We South London. Who wants to go down South London? Wow. <laughs> well thanks a lot for joining us adrian and um, it's okay it's been great to speak to you been a pleasure that's gone quick we've got some half price crack ties some miles and miles of carpet tiles tvs deep freeze and david bowie lps all games gold chains worst names and had a push and trevor francis track suits from a mush and shepherd's bush 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 Income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Black or white, rich or poor, we'll cut prices at a straw. Street.